Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. Hey there everybody, welcome back to Therapy for Humans, episode 20. So, my youngest daughter went on a solo backpacking trip this week. She was gone for three nights and four days. Originally, it was supposed to be five nights and six days, but the weather forced her to cut it short, which I think we all were happy about. It was a rough trip for her. She doesn't like to be alone, which is why she chose to do this. This was intentionally way outside of her comfort zone, and honestly, it was way outside all of our comfort zones. But she went to a really remote area of the Utah desert, no cell reception, 2,200 feet down in the canyon. Sorry, I'm being distracted by this hummingbird right outside my window. Just hanging out. Super cool. Anyway, anyway, whatever. It was a three-hour drive from the trail to the trailhead from my in-laws' place in Bluff, uh, Utah. And uh, we had hoped that she would let us know when she got there. But, of course, when she got there, there was no self-reception. And so we just had to trust that she had found the trailhead and started her adventure when... We went on, you know, four and a half, five hours without any contact since she had driven away. So that was like phase one of trust that this is going to be fine. Anyway, the next few days were really fucking rough for my wife and I. Um, Turns out they were pretty rough for Lydia too, but we didn't know that at the time. (laughs) We were swinging wildly from trusting our kid and knowing that she was strong enough and smart enough and had the appropriate gear for the trip. Um an absolute panic that something horrible had happened and we'd never see her again, which I admit was a little dramatic, but you know, that's what we were feeling. And, uh, you know, we'd wake up in the middle of the night, just like in an absolute panic and try to figure out like, is this, are we just freaking out because we're worried parents or is she like really in trouble and psychically trying to call out for help? Uh, where's the line between trusting the process and being a good protective parent? You know, it wasn't too long ago that kids would leave home often a lot younger than Lydia's 17 years. And the parents might never hear from them again, or they might not hear from them for months. So surely we can handle four days without contact. And we did. We handled it. But it was really hard. We were super psyched to hear from her when she got back within cell range. And I'm super proud of her for taking on her fears of being alone. And I'm proud of her for knowing when to cut it short knowing when it was no longer safe for her to be there. I'm proud of Anna and I for letting her go, even though it scared the shit out of us. I guess this is what parenting is. It's that continuous process of letting go and offering support, of weighing the risks, of letting them push their comfort zones and yours, and trusting that you've given them the tools they need to make the right choices for themselves, which may not always be the right choices for you or the choices that you would choose to make for them. And I think that's often the source of a lot of tension between teens and their parents. And I'm grateful to have kids that I trust and respect, and it keeps that tension to a minimum. At this point in my 17-year-old's life, most of that discomfort is mine to own around things that scare me on her behalf. It's not really my job to insist that she live her life based on my terms any longer. I had my time for that, and I need to trust the job that I did. And after all, I think that's what she's doing too. Anyway, that's a little slice of what my week looked like. So we had a couple more emails come in today, uh, or this week. Um, 
So the first one says, Rowan, I've enjoyed uh, and gathered thus far from your podcasts that you openly discuss your recreational substances of choice freely. <laughs> Uh-oh. I like that you don't ever seem to make too many disclaimers about those nods as a healthy use style seems to be implied. So here's my thing. I'm the epitome of a functioning alcoholic. I've worked in this industry my entire life. I'm thoroughly educated around the harms, bodily, mentally, environmentally, the laws and the histories, nationally and culturally. I never drink or drive, drink and drive, or get violent, and I can recognize if I'm slanting in a less than favorable direction and move towards repair or ending my evening in a clear way. My stink is that nowadays it seems that many are smoking pot as much as possible everywhere and want and expect different considerations about how, when, and why they use, and they aren't being held as accountable as one might the typical drinker. I'm in meetings, people are high. Checking out at the grocery store, high. Driving, the dude in front of me 15 miles per hour under, high. It feels ridiculous. I'm not drinking in any of these situations. Why the allowance for pot all day, every day for many? They should have to wait until 5 o'clock too. Colorado Proud is no excuse. Can we all get functioning and sober from 8 to 5? I forgot my questions because it's late and I've had a few. Help a dude gain some insight or validate my want for equal accountability. Cheers. Well, yeah, thanks for your email. I do, I guess, tend to not shy away from disclosures about my use of both alcohol and weed. I like them both. Um, and I'm glad to hear that healthy use seems to be implied because I do feel like I have a pretty good handle on my usage of both of those substances. Um, I certainly do not partake during work hours. That would be unethical as well as illegal in the course of my work. But even beyond all of that, I just really don't want to be fucked up all the time. Um, I think that I don't come across as well when I have been indulging in either of those substances. And since my job is to come across in a way that I hope is insightful and helpful, um, yeah, I'd be really fucked up if I was fucked up. So I don't do that. I don't even get fucked up doing the podcast. I suppose I could, but I don't. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about why it seems to be okay, especially, I don't know if this is a Colorado thing or if you'd find the same thing in Washington, Oregon, and you know, those are kind of the three states that have been legalized, legalized marijuana the longest, but why is it okay, seemingly okay, to be high all the time, but being drunk throughout the day would be definitely frowned upon? So this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people for many years. It was often a topic of conversation up in the counseling center at Fort Lewis because uh, there were a lot of kids that we were working with up there who were high all day. Um, and we were not addressing that in the same way that we would address alcohol use that would start in the morning and go out throughout the day. Um, and that would be a very different conversation. So why is it different? And, you know, personally, like one of my pet peeves is, is at the dispensary. You know, when I go to the liquor store, I don't expect the clerks to be hammered, but every time I go into the dispensary, it seems like all the employees are completely baked. And to be fair, it seems like a lot of liquor store folks are high too, but that's, that's exactly what you're talking about. It's like wherever you go. I remember uh, a young woman came in for a job interview when I was managing a local business in town. This was years ago. And she was completely blazed. Her eyes were bleeding. They were at half mast. She had that kind of telltale permagrin of the totally stoned and she was floating around the shop telling everyone how awesome they looked and to make sure to have a totally beautiful day. She came in my office and sat down and I really tried to take her interview seriously. 
but I only got, I don't know, maybe two minutes in. And I just stopped and I looked at her and I said, so on a scale of one to 10, how high would you say you are right now? She seemed a little surprised, but then she got kind of defensive and she was like, I don't know, like a seven. I said, okay, so you do admit to being high. And she said with like this super haughty tone that she should not have felt comfortable with using with me in a job interview. She said, well, yeah, but medically. So I guess she thought that her med card meant that it was okay to come to a job interview all fucked up. I did inform her that this was not the case and she was completely unimpressed with that and honestly seemed baffled by my reaction to this. Anyway, I sent her on her way, but I still see her around town. It always kind of makes me chuckle. And I do wonder sometimes if, you know, the way this whole marijuana legalization of marijuana thing started in most states was was a, a medical card that you could get. And, and I wonder if that gave people a level of permission that maybe they took too far. Um, because most, I don't know, to my knowledge, no medical marijuana card or prescriptions or whatever you want to call it comes with any sort of guidelines on uh, time of day usage or even maybe even frequency of usage. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know how that works. I've never been to a medical provider um, for marijuana card. So um, let me know if you, if you know, email me and let me know what the deal is with that. But my guess is that maybe it's just like, here you go, smoke weed. And then people do. And so maybe that has something to do with this idea that it's just okay all the time. But this has been going on long before there were anything called a med card and long before it was legal anywhere. So that's probably not it. Um, so I guess we should also name that impairment from marijuana and impairment from alcohol are different. Um, I did some digging around on the interwebs and I found a lot of research that clearly finds that driving, for instance, under the influence of either of these substances significantly increases your risk of an accident. No shocker there. Combining them increases those risks further. This also should not be new information for anybody. Um, most of the current available data, even on pro-weed websites, clearly indicates that driving under the influence of marijuana is a bad idea. Most of the research also indicates that alcohol is more impairing to driving skills than weed alone. But that doesn't mean that driving high is safe. It's nearly impossible to find non-biased uh, studies on marijuana um, that is changing now that it's become legal in a lot of states. And so you're seeing a lot more broad range, long-term, you know, large scale studies. Um, but we're kind of still waiting to see how those all shake out. But in general, right now, the consensus seems to be that the effects of marijuana tend to be less noticeable than the effects of alcohol, especially when it comes to motor control and balance effects on impulse control I can certainly say for myself that I'm much more likely to do or say something that I wish I hadn't under the influence of alcohol versus weed. So this may be another thing that's kind of at the root of the acceptance we see among pot smokers in terms of all day use, that it's simply easier to get away with. There's less chance of, I don't know, undesirable outcomes. You're generally not stumbling around. You're generally not slurring your speech. You're generally not saying wildly outlandish and inappropriate things, um, unless that's just your jam anyway. So sociologically, I also think that because pot was illegal until very recently, public use and speaking about the frequency of one's usage was kept more under wraps. So in other words, if you're going to do something that's kind of secret and illegal, it's less of an issue when you do it because there's not social acceptance widely around it anyway. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I'm just like throwing darts because 
I don't know how to answer your question because this is something that I have struggled with too. And a lot of people I've talked to, you know, and we're not really sure how to handle it. And so you do mention accountability and why we're not holding people more accountable, especially in professional settings and behind the wheel. And it's an excellent question and one that we need to keep talking about. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to tell if someone's stoned or if they're just tired or out of it for some other reason. And so calling someone out for being high and being wrong about that can be problematic, especially in a workplace setting. Um, so like most issues of this kind, I think there needs to be more attention paid on the part of business owners and managers. And too often, at least from what I've seen in professional settings, those are the folks who are setting the tone of not being sober themselves. So, you know, if your boss is high, what's your incentive for not coming in in the same condition? Or, you know, I mean, often I think, you know, the manager's pulling people out into the alley and smoking weed with them as a, as a way to connect or whatever the fuck. I don't even know. But I agree that certainly in Durango on a regular basis, anywhere you go, and especially in service industry jobs, people just seem to be baked all the time. And I do think that there needs to be more conversation about that and less acceptance of it. And I think drawing those parallels between alcohol and marijuana you know, it was a good place to start that conversation. So thank you for the email. I, you know, it's, I, you know, obviously wish I had some deep insight to this, but I don't, I just have more questions and, uh, and yeah, anyway, it's something we'll, we'll keep talking about. Okay. We have another email. Um, so this one's a little bit heavier just to give you a heads up. Uh, they say, dear Rowan, I'm a trauma survivor and processor. I am fully aware of my trust issues, inability to trust people well or easily. In conjunction with this, as my mom lovingly puts it, I am a freak flypaper. I am, oh, I am freak flypaper, meaning I tend to attract people in my life, friend-wise or romantic alike, that are also trauma victims, who have created their own reality in response and have proven to be hefty manipulators and end up using my generosity and understanding and willingness to to work to benefit them. In a nutshell, I'm constantly finding myself being used after what I think are some of the only glimmers of trusting relationships I can house. I'm beyond hurt, approaching 40 and single and beyond gun-shy at this point when I sense closeness with anyone. Are all humans shit? Is there something that I can be doing differently to vet potential abusers from my friend pools? I really, really do want closeness, something I think I've only been able to admit seriously as of recently. So thank you for your email. Um, you know, there's a lot to this. Um, and I, and I hear this a lot from both clients and friends. Um, you know, they say, Oh, I attract assholes and abusers and it must be a pheromone thing or something, something about me. It's hard for me to get behind the idea that there's something inherent about anyone that would attract a certain kind of person. Um, that having been said, there are certain circles that we can run in that have a higher percentage of people with difficult pasts. Um, Therapists are one of those groups, some of us, but not all of us found our way to this work because we went through our own stuff and maybe we we were inspired by someone who helped us, or maybe we're still searching for answers. Um, I've known way too many people in, in my field, uh, who tend towards manipulation or who have poor boundaries due to their own unresolved histories. So your environment could be one of the reasons that you seem to be surrounded by fucked up people. Uh, it's also worth considering your own outward presentation. Is there something about you that tips off potential abusers that you might be an easy target? Are you clear with your boundaries? Do you advocate for yourself in social situations? 
And I'm not trying to blame the victim here. There's no excuse for being used, abused, or taken advantage of in any way. And I'm not saying it's your fault if this is happening. But sometimes there are signs that assholes look for that tip them off that they might be able to do their thing more effectively with one person over another. So once you look at your own shit, it's time to look outward. So how are your filters? Do you need to fine-tune your bullshit slash abuser detectors? Is there something about those types of personalities that attract you? Is it worth considering that rather than you being attractive to those people, that maybe those types of people are somehow attractive to you, maybe without you even being aware of this? I have no idea. It's all worth considering, though. And above and beyond all that, how do you move forward wanting closeness, craving authentic connection, while also protecting yourself from emotional and psychological destruction if you end up with somebody who is an abuser? So there's two branches to this. Having good, strong, intentional boundaries is one side, and also accepting the risk of getting hurt. So let's talk about the first part first. My colleague and mentor, Colin Smith, has a great way of talking about boundaries. Some people are wide open, and if you were in front of me right now, I'd be holding my arms wide out like, like, wide out, like I was inviting you into a big hug. They hold nothing back, and everyone is invited all the way in immediately. This is fraught with potential dangers for that person as well as those who dare to connect with them. On the other end of the spectrum are those folks who are completely closed up, so now my arms are wrapped around myself with no room for you to get in. And these people are so afraid of getting hurt that they never let anyone near the door, let alone letting anyone actually in. So a more healthy option looks like a bit of a maze. So now I'm holding my arms in front of me, palms facing my chest, one hand in front of the other. I have no idea if you can picture this, but that's all I got on that for the visual aids. But anyway, so this more healthy boundary allows entrance, but only so far at first. You have to pass through a series of gates. We get to decide how long someone needs to wait before passing through that next gate into that next level of intimacy with us. Some will only get to the first one and that's it. That's as far as they're ever going to get. Others might get a little further in and that's going to be it for them. Only a few people will ever get all the way in. I used to let everyone in all the way because I craved that level of intimacy, that deep connection. As I got older, I finally learned that this was not in my best interest. And at times I was either leading people on in terms of the level of relationship that I wanted, or I was making people feel uncomfortable with the depth that I was operating at when they weren't ready to go there. So healthy boundaries I think is an important piece of this. And it also means that you get to protect yourself for as long as you feel like you need to with each individual that you interact with. The second part of this takes almost no time to talk about, but is maybe harder to accept, which is that all intimate relationships carry a risk of pain. There's no way around it. And the risk is always present. And like I said, in the last episode, I do not believe that we should hold ourselves back from connection to assure that we don't get hurt. Rather, we need to do everything within our power to vet those who we are getting close to. We need to build up our own personal resiliency so that if we do get hurt, we're not completely destroyed by it. And we need to go bravely and consciously into that heart space with others and hope for the best. So I do hope the best for you on this journey to find connection without the pain. So that brings us to the end of another episode. If you have a question for me, you can get in touch with me through email at rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com. 
You can call our voicemail line at one 387 2646 That's one 844 Durango. And if you'd like to see me live and in person for therapy, you can get in touch with me through DurangoPsychotherapy.com or call or text me at 970-903-3893. So until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.